Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. On the show today, we have Dr. Michelle Haslam. She's a clinical psychologist who became involved with the new Kadampa tradition in 2016, living in their meditation center in Northamptonshire, England. Michelle experienced indoctrination and spiritual abuse within the group, and despite her training as a psychologist, came to believe that she should be destroying her ego instead of practicing self-care and self-compassion. Now Michelle produces materials that explain the process of indoctrination within Buddhist cultic groups. Michelle has since been a target of harassment via her workplace and also character assassination from senior members of the group. As a result, her workplaces now remain confidential. But you can visit her website at www.newkadampatraditionreport.org or the YouTube channel Recovery from the New Kadampa Tradition. Here's part one of my conversation with Michelle Haslam. Well, I'm so happy today to have Michelle Haslam on the show because, uh, you know, when you contacted me and, and told me about your experiences and also being able to speak about your experiences from your history, but also from your professional awareness and your studies, it was a really lovely combination. Um, and what you're going to be talking about is a group that I've heard about, but certainly not from your perspective. And so I certainly, I want to hear about what you experienced and then also what you've learned based upon your studies and what you would like the audience to be able to learn in a specific way about the group, but in, I'm supposing, a general sense about control and manipulation, intimidation, all of it that's been part of your story as well. So please introduce yourself. Hi, yeah, so um, I'm Michelle. I have a doctor title. I've got used to using it. Um, it helps with credibility. <laughs> um, but yeah, please just call me Michelle. Um, and yeah, I'm a clinical psychologist from the UK and I became involved in the new Kadampa tradition and sort of Western Buddhist groups in general back in 2015. Yeah. Okay. And so then, of course, we can go back before that time, but I'm wondering um, what drew you in to begin with? Quite a few different factors really actually my training as a clinical psychologist was part of it because mindfulness is now um, a strong element of our training and um, it's quite a natural route into Buddhism through the mindfulness movement because often you'll be told that learning and practicing mindfulness will be really good for your mental health and um, even still mental health charities in the UK are actually recommending that people go and check out their local Buddhist meditation class. So uh, it was kind of just a natural progression. And also there was so much in social media 
you know, just kind of memes, you know, this too shall pass and Eckhart Tolle's book, Power of Now um, was floating. It was very popular at the time. Um, so um, yeah, I've done a couple of introductory courses through Tree Ratna, um, which is a group that was formerly called um, Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. And then I had lived in a intentional community in Texas for a few months. And I really enjoyed um, the intentional community aspect. When I came back to the UK, I decided that I wanted to live in another intentional community in the future, but with a little bit more shared sort of, uh, not necessarily beliefs, but taking lots of personal responsibility, or they would, um, yeah, perhaps have more tools for, do for dealing with their mental health um, than people who perhaps weren't meditating. Um, I now know, you know, I have a much more nuanced understanding now of, you know, the potential contraindications and adverse effects of all types of meditative practices. But I'm also now aware that um, just because you have Buddhist beliefs, um, it doesn't mean that um, you are taking personal responsibility. And a Buddhist, well, a community that calls itself Buddhist can actually be a destructive cult. But at the time, you know, they just would not have crossed my mind. You know, Westerners have a really um, positive view of Buddhism. It, they believe it's the only religion left that's still safe and just about peace and love. And sadly, I had not read testimonies. There were already some testimonies online from the New Kadampa tradition, um, but I didn't go looking for them and they weren't so easy to find. And I kind of had a, well, I'll just try it and find out for myself kind of attitude. Um, yeah, and I was also a bit depressed at the time. So I think that made me more vulnerable than I realized. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So I want to go back to you being depressed at the time. Um, and But first, if you can explain to people who might not be aware of that term, what an intentional community is. Yeah, so the community that I'd lived in in America was um, centered around sustainability. And it kind of came out of the student cooperative movement, but it was for people um, in there who'd already graduated, but still wanted to live in, in that way. So I guess it's just a, a group of people who have decided to live together because that's one of their values is shared living, pooling resources, perhaps communicating in in ways that facilitate decision group decision make you know dem, dem, democratic decision making around the house and um yeah so this was kind of something that had really transformed my life and I particularly loved the shared meals aspect so two of us would cook for the rest of the house every night and um I really loved that I, you know I thought that was great and so I was um really intrigued by intentional communities in general. And so I was looking for a similar experience when I got back to the UK and I did find some, but they were Christian and I, I knew I wasn't a Christian, so that didn't seem suitable. But then with Buddhist groups, often you're given this belief, that um, this suggestion that Buddhism can just be like a science of the mind 
uh, it's a system for training your mind. Um, it's not, it doesn't have to be a religion. You know, some people call it fiction, but other people don't. It's quite normal for academics to be um, reading Buddhist texts. So um, it didn't really matter to me that I wasn't fully identifying as a Buddhist. Uh, you know, I thought I could, I suppose, take advantage of some of the meditation practices and the community um, without believing in reincarnation, rebirth, or uh, past or future lives, uh, you know, or um, enlightenment being a permanent state that can be achieved. This, it didn't really, I knew that some people did believe that, which probably didn't set off an, enough alarm bells for me as it should have, but I never felt like um, alarmed by Buddhists up until, up until that point. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. So thank you for explaining that. I think that it's an important thing to be able to talk about people who come together who want to be able to have a similar experience in their lives and want to be able to live with similar uh, principles, um, want to be able to have uh, an experience that feels meaningful kind of from start to finish. Um, I think it's, it's important also to be able to talk about the depression that you were talking about. And um, what I think is, is good to, yeah, to mention is the emotional self at the time, the, the things that were making you open. And from what I've seen, the things that sometimes make people um, a little too open, um, too in need of what is being offered so that they don't notice maybe some of the things that could be problematic that in retrospect were things that became problematic even more so and became more glaring. And so can you talk a little bit about what that kind of opened you up to and also maybe a little foreshadowing what that um, lowered potentially your defenses to at the time? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because some people still believe that if you just know enough information, then you'll be protected. I mean, to be honest, I didn't know about cultic dynamics um, either. So, um, but emotionally, yeah, I was, um, I had a disappointment. I'd moved abroad for a relationship and it had only lasted three days um, and I was absolutely devastated and oh. yeah, felt very um, betrayed and abandoned and that kind of triggered a lot for me and um, so I was struggling with trust and I think I had some yeah a, a quite a strong fear of intimacy at the time um, and also um, I probably didn't have a lot of motivation to engage in activities that I enjoyed because I was, as you know, when you're depressed, you just don't have that. And I think um, the beliefs of the, the new Kadampa tradition really fed into that without me realizing at the time, as you say, it's all very easy in hindsight. Um, but because they believe that it's suffering that brings you to the Dharma and that um, you need more suffering in order um, to progress on the spiritual path and worldly mundane activities are meaningless. Um, that kind of fed into 
um, my lack of energy and motivation to build a meaningful, fulfilling life. Um, so um, there was quite a lot of subtle and then not so subtle suggestions that non-practitioners or outsiders were, um, you know, still engaging in meaningless activities and they were more mundane and they had ordinary states of mind. Um, and so that allows someone who is depressed and cannot really um, work towards behavioral activation um, to, to sort of say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. And actually what I'm doing is more spiritual. And if you have um, complex trauma around relationships, it allows you to, um, your fear of intimacy uh, or your attachment style, it, it, can, it gives it a spiritual twist to seem more virtuous. So um, the New Kadampa tradition practice a lot of spiritual bypassing. So um, they believe that we're supposed to be happy all the time. And so that means that they practice a lot of applying opponents to negative emotional states or minds that are uncomfortable or not in line with the teachings. And so um, sadness, jealousy, anger, you know, they all have something that's called an antidote or an opponent. Um, and so um for example um if you are jealous you're supposed to uh rejoice in the other person's happiness instead of understand why you might be feeling jealous and whether there's an underlying need there that's telling you something about your life or your relationships or how lonely you are or whatever um, now I understand that that's the main aim behind that is um, really engulfment within the group because if you don't feel jealous of outsiders who still engage in worldly ordinary mundane things then you're less likely to leave um, so um, there's this strange yeah dual practice of both pitying them and you know trying to be happy for them at the same time wish them well but it often comes out in a very passive aggressive patronizing way and this can be seen in the comments that I receive on YouTube and on my website um so but if you um have some uh recent disappointments or heartbreaks um, which most people actually do when they become involved because you can move into the centers and you can volunteer for them in exchange for a room and food. So if you've had a recent experience of homelessness or um, a breakup where you were living with your partner and you need a place to go, um, lots of people um get drawn in through actually living in the buildings when they weren't identifying as a Buddhist before that. Um, they just wanted a, a place to, to go where it was either cheap rent or um, they didn't have to pay it. They could, they could volunteer. And perhaps that initial period of volunteering gave them some structure, some routine, and it 
it was sold to them as a really meaningful activity that would help all living beings. Um, and that initially, um, if you've just experienced a rejection or a heartbreak, can feel really good. And I, and I think some of those conditions are kind of like the stabilization uh, phase of um, an intervention um, where you're, um, you're given structure, routine, um, social contact, um, and, you know, shelter. Um, so, um, and you, you maybe think that you're getting somewhere because you're told that this is a path and that things are going to improve for you. And you, if you are already um, um, studying the text and you're already becoming, uh, you know, a, a kind of true believer, you might believe that you have really fortunate karma to have found the tradition um, and the teachings. And uh, you must have done something in a past life that led you to have this fortunate karma. So that's kind of like the love bombing um, phase where you're told that you're special and um, you have something that outsiders don't have and you're really fortunate and it's all really beautiful and blissful and special. So obviously um, for someone who's had um, a lot of uh, rejection and um, disappointments in life, um, there are a lot of things that are very... Uh, reinforcing about that. Mm. Okay, so I'm I'm thinking of uh, uh, Lifton's criteria. If people want to look up Lifton's uh, criteria of, of thought reform, of just uh, this idea within a spiritual community that people um, do lower their defenses. They do think that there is this something very special and you're specially chosen and, and, uh, but it is this mystical manipulation as he calls it. Um, there is something that you mentioned that's so interesting, this, um, spiritual bypassing, uh, because I, I find anytime you're involved in any kind of an organization or even a kind of therapy where they're helping you to bypass something as opposed to addressing it, then you always have the potential propensity for it being stored, for it not being dealt with, or for it being dealt with in the wrong way, that you're supposed to just give up those negative feelings, give up those, uh, or kind of abandon or forget. Um, and and take on this new blissful way of being. And that's not addressing anything at all. It's just sort of uh, switching one chemical for another chemical in the brain, but doesn't address what's, what's happening. I think that there's also something about feeling that uh, this is some karmic reward that if you then are having a bad experience, then how do you put that together in your mind if this is something special, but it's not feeling that way? Yeah, then that's because you don't have enough faith, you have too much doubt in your mind, you need to dedicate more of your actions and more of your time to the guru or the teachings or the group. Um, you're not doing it right, uh, you've misunderstood, or you just don't have the karma to connect with these teachings. So yeah, of course, if something's going well, then it's because your mind has been blessed by um, Kelsang Gyatso. If it's uh, 
not going well for you it's your karma yeah okay um you know I'm writing down as you're as you're talking this whole idea of you're not doing it right or you misunderstood um it, it's another one of these examples that I'm sure you've if you as you said you've listened to the podcast that I've probably said uh, a lot because it happens almost all the time it's like these these leaders have read the same manual um and they have the same evasive maneuvers uh and uh and I think about defensive driving class but it's sort of this the defensive spiritual class and defensive ego class that they took where they're saying I can't handle any kind of criticism or any truth actually about this situation or about myself and myself as a teacher or the veracity of the teachings so it's always on you and you haven't done it right or you haven't understood or maybe you're not doing it enough and that kind of gets you to be more invested is that was that part of it as well absolutely yes so basically um you can never argue with anyone that maybe there's something unhealthy about some of the practices because uh, you will be gaslighted basically okay and so in what ways can you give some examples of the gaslighting yeah so it's very common um in um many uh, western buddhist groups um there's research coming out now so miriam anders has published some research about the silencing of abuse and trauma in um groups that call themselves buddhist and so it's the crazy wisdom idea is one of the most dangerous so the idea that your teacher or your abuser could be a buddha or an emanation of an an enlightened being teaching you by causing you suffering and so uh because more suffering is what's needed to help you advance on the spiritual path then you should actually be grateful for abuse and so if you try and report this you if you try and report an abusive experience to the management or to a friend within the group um then you'll be told that you must have done something similar in a previous life, um, that it's your karma and um, that your the perpetrator is your teacher. Um, so, or you're told that the teacher, when they're on the throne, they're a manifestation of Buddha. When they're off the throne, they're not. So um, basically you can never say um, that you don't think that someone um, is a safe person for you or you, you can never um, report a safeguarding problem because um, you will be gaslighted in this way. And that's the most dangerous aspect of the teaching. Really, they're used to make you doubt your own perception and your own reality because you're constantly told that things aren't the way you see it. Life's just like a dream. It's an illusion. Um, it's empty. Your feelings are empty. Um, yeah, our minds are unreliable. Our memories are unreliable. And so, and of course, there is some truth in that, which makes it hard to completely argue with. And if you're, if you're quite a sort of sciencey, mostly atheist, 
person, then they might not give you the full-blown magical thinking, mystical aspect of the teaching that would gaslight you. They might just use something a little bit more like, you know, oh, well, you know, our memory can be a little bit unreliable or, yeah. So um, the most indoctrinated members would would say the things like, it's your karma, it was what you did in a previous life. But even the, the more, um, let's say, the younger people who are involved who maybe don't really believe in past and future lives, but and they maybe read um, texts by other Buddhist authors, uh, whereas the, the members who've been around a long time who met Kel San Gyatso, because um, he's not really around anymore, um, they will only really read his texts because all other books were banned from the bookshops and um, it's considered um, confusing to um, read more than one um, author so um, but even the younger members they would still um, use the teachings to get me to doubt my own reality and I saw this happening um, between other people as well, but they just might not use such an extreme or such a uh, magical component of the teachings to do this. Okay, I'm I'm wanting to go, oh, there's so much that you said that I yeah. want to come back to. Wow, um, okay, so first of all, um, what you just said and then going back a little bit, that it's considered to be confusing to read information from more than one teacher, right? So while that can be true at times, I mean, clearly so much of what happens within this, these kinds of groups is this um, idealization and idolization of this one true leader mm-hmm. who can then be the only source of the information. And so it, for some people, it wouldn't necessarily be confusing. It would actually give them um, a, a more kind of well-informed and varied view and potentially a, an opposite view. Mm. And that's too much of a threat, I suppose. Mm. Um, and so people are kept from being able to have texts that, that help them compare and that help them to be informed. And, and so just you know a a word about that to anyone listening if you are kept from information if you're kept from accessing other sources of information there's usually a reason and it's not for your benefit mm. and, yeah. uh, right and so did you want to say something about that and then i wanted to talk about the abuse a bit go ahead yeah sure so um you're told that Kelsan Gyatso is the third living Buddha, that he's an enlightened being, um, that um, his version of the Dharma is pure. You're not directly told that all other versions are impure, but it's implied because you're told that this is like uh, the most pure. So, you know, um, and then he doesn't, say in his text that he should be your spiritual guide but he says that you know you should just choose one and devote 
yourself to your spiritual guide and of course you're already there so you choose him um you know you're not gonna read that and then go somewhere else unless you spot some serious warning signs especially because there aren't that many you know if you live down the road from a center and there's a lovely cafe and you can have tea and coffee there you're gonna go there um you're not gonna choose someone else so um yeah and and then uh, later on it doesn't happen so much these days but in the past um people were told that um that they should uh sacrifice a lot for their guru they would be asked if they would jump off a cliff for their guru um they were asked to take a bullet for him like security staff were made to wear bulletproof vests and asked if they would take a bullet for their guru um and if you study some of the um, more uh, the texts that they're not the beginner level texts, then they state in those that if you turn away from your teacher, that you will be reborn in a hell realm. Um, so it doesn't say if you turn away from Kel Sang yet, so you'll be reborn in a hell realm. But if you've taken him as your, your spiritual guide, then that's what it means to you. Um, and some uh, the ordination process for Yukadampa tradition ordained um, members, um, your name, if you decide to leave the NKT, the name that you're given, you're not allowed to keep it. And this is actually not common in all other Buddhist traditions. If you leave your guru, you can still keep your ordained name, but not in the NKT, you're basically the property of Kelsangyaso. And if you leave, then you're going to be reborn in a hell realm. Um, you cannot use the name that he gave you. And your ordination and your vows, they're completely meaningless and non-transferable, if you like. Um, and this is not apparently um, how it's actually supposed to be. And um, this is just one of the aspects that makes it occult really right absolutely and it and it's um so much about you're either with us or you're not you're either a part of this family or you're now going to be shunned from this family um and cast away you can't keep your name which is uh associating you with this with, with this group with this family um it feels very punitive and unspiritual as i'm sure a lot of things as you're thinking about them, are we're unspiritual here. Uh, but yeah, there's something very profound about taking on a new name and that it's a, this sort of personal thing that you should be able to keep for the rest of your life. So yeah, it just, it feels, um, <clears throat> it, it, there are things that you're describing to me uh, that feel a little like spiritual tantrums, you know? Like, I'm not going to let you keep your, you know, <laughs> if you leave. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, it's, I think go ahead, really go ahead. It's one of the most, um, what I've seen in former members is a really severe form of Stockholm syndrome, a really mm. trauma bond where years after leaving some former members that speak to me who have seen some cultic aspects and they know that Kel Sangiatso is probably dead or has dementia, but this is being hidden from them by his entourage, but they still say I love Geshla I love Geshla because um 
they're told right from the beginning that um he's like their spiritual father and um they're told that all we need is Geshler says um and he has our our best wishes he loves us you know um and so they have a really strong misplaced loyalty towards him and um yeah for some former members um they say that i mean the betrayal trauma when when you find out that the group that actually he never even completed his Geshe exams he was expelled from his monastery he blackmailed the original FPMT center at the Manjushri headquarters in order to take over the building um there's actually quite a lot of testimonies that real that reveal controlling and manipulate manipulation um controlling behaviors and, and manipulation from him um but if you don't read all of that yeah it's um or perhaps you read it and you don't believe it Mm. so um Mm -hmm. actually there's a lot of evidence that he's not an enlightened being if you believe I didn't even believe that there are enlightened beings but I just didn't I mean I lived in the building but I had a full-time job I worked as a psychologist I didn't work I didn't volunteer there I um just went to like one meditation class a week which was kind of like Buddhism light and um so and I I kind of had an extreme radical feeling from a few people in the group but I also noticed that those people perhaps had um autistic traits and so I just kind of thought you know they're just really into this and um I kind of just thought I, I didn't know really about coercive control or indoctrination at the time. Even as a clinical psychologist, we were never taught anything like this. Um, and the mindfulness movement, as I say, had actually given me positive prejudice towards Buddhism. So I just it was only in time when I noticed how much they parrot the teachings word for word, like without any kind of pause or without any sort of thinking going on that the the teachings just um they just lecture you with the teachings all the time um word for word um it was only then that I started to think something's something's not right here Mm -hmm. right yeah right and so to go back so if I want to be I want to be able to have you pick up from that something's not quite right here just before that Going back to the stories that you were talking about um, regarding abuse and that uh, the suffering is for your benefit uh, and somehow you need to be grateful that it's creating some spiritual development. It's even hard to say that out loud. Uh, So what is true in those moments is abuse gets either not defined or misdefined uh and a lot of people who i who i work with who uh were born and raised in certain groups don't know that they were abused uh because it was called something else yeah and so they don't know why they're n- not able to be in a relationship now and they don't want to be touched 
And they don't know why they let themselves be hurt in certain ways where people out in the public will say, why are you tolerating that? And they say, tolerating what? Mm. Um, and so just having it be in such a cruel way, be seen as something that is um, a gift to you is, is quite horrible, but unfortunately quite common. Mm. Um, and so then moving back forward. So you were noticing that something was off. So what yeah. was what was it that you were noticing and did you feel like you had to keep it to yourself? So regarding the abuse, what happened was I was in a psychologically abusive relationship and I was being gaslighted. But because I was partially indoctrinated, I didn't necessarily spot it. Um, you know, I, even though I'm a psychologist, I and I would never tell my clients uh, to believe what I was believing. That's what's so interesting about it. You know, I would never recommend that anyone else do what I was doing to my own mental state. But yeah, this is just how it was happening mm. for me. And so he started to say that um, everything was all in my head and. Uh, the typical things, which obviously afterwards in hindsight, you're like, wow, this is the narcissist dream. Like they can do what they would have done anyway, but now they've got all kinds of spiritual narratives behind what they're doing. Right. Um, so that not only can you not point out what they're doing, but if you go to anyone else, they will, um, the bystander effect is um, really strong in Buddhist mm -hmm. groups. Um, but not, it's not only a bystander effect, it's also a, um, you're likely to be gaslighted again by the entire group. So, I mean, there's, all, there's always a reputation saving element to, um, you know, a group where um, they don't want the wider world to know that abuse has happened within the group. But in a Buddhist group, it's very easy um, to blame the victim entirely mm. and so I didn't see anything too worrying with my own eyes when I was involved I was only involved for 18 months I had a full-time job elsewhere I had a car I did other things I still had friends outside the group um but when I reported um he told me that um I should be focusing on his happiness when I thought he was exploiting somebody sexually who was vulnerable. And I thought, no, I know this isn't right. Um, so I reported it to the national spiritual director who um, was kind of considered, she was supposed to be considered an emanation of Buddha Tara, which I didn't believe, but I still had a little bit of awe towards her somehow. And she told me that my practice was enduring suffering. And uh, when I told her that I believed, you know, he was saying this and I didn't think it was right. She did say, yeah, that's not correct. But then she started talking about my karma and um, she didn't say that she would speak to him, even though he was actually a teacher. And he was already in a sexual relationship with someone who was vulnerable and far away from home. And that's when I realized 
that actually it was never about taking personal responsibility it was about avoiding responsibility mm. for the center it means they can then always um they ne they never actually have to take responsibility because they can just say for safeguarding because they can just say um that it's all just karma so um mm -hmm. i stepped away and um I then, because I, I started to think, well, surely this is also what they would say about sexual abuse then. And that wasn't okay to me. Mm -hmm. I hadn't yet read testimonies. I, I moved out and I um, had a break and a rest and I didn't read anything for a while related to the group. But then when I did start reading the testimonies and I found out that actually there had been quite a lot of alleged sexual abuse where tantric ideas were used to um, convince people that having sex with their teacher was more spiritual than average sex. Um, and that there were some people who have alleged sexual assault and told not to go to the police um, because it would ruin the reputation of the NKT. Um, and then I was absolutely distraught and um i realized that um it was an abuse enabling and minimizing um movement or you know cult basically um so yeah although i didn't witness any sexual abuse personally but i did witness the teachers uh having sexual relationships with people who attended their teachings um and people who who were clearly vulnerable um with no um conversations being had about the abuse of power there or how somebody might be looking up to a teacher um so i didn't know that what i was what i experienced was really just the tip of the iceberg of the history of the nkt they've now um introduced a safeguarding policy in 2018 and some safeguarding officers but I've been told by people that um, these very people have told them not to go to the police in the past so um, and this is also common in in other Buddhist groups it's been reported that you know the safeguarding officer if it's internal safeguarding that's really meaningless because they normally they're infatuated with the guru um, their critical thinking skills are affected and it's mainly a reputation saving activity um, and they only really introduce safeguarding uh, when their reputations are being ruined to appear as if they ha they have safeguarding but if you believe that abuse only exists in the mind and that um an abuser is your teacher a safeguarding policy is meaningless right right and i think writing this down about abuse only exists in your mind um i i mean what what that does certainly is it uh it limits um the idea of cause and effect it, it there's no perpetrator then you're perpetrating mm. yourself uh, and so then 
when people are abusers and they know that part of the teaching is that you are going to believe that abuse is in your mind or that you somehow deserved it or it's for your benefit, the message they get, of course, is they can do whatever they want and they can do it to whatever degree they want. Um, and there will be no consequence and they don't even have to feel bad about it. Um, and so, I mean, that's just sort of, you know, creating monsters and, uh, with no gates in place to protect you from the monsters. Yeah. And if, um, your teacher, you know, is even more kind of in uh, perfect than just the average person in the group, then the higher the person moves up the rankings, the more invincible they are. Um, and uh, yeah, so actually the, the history of the NKT um, is really disturbing once you've read, um, and, and there's so many testimonies that aren't out there um, because people are actually afraid of their perpetrators and they have been threatened into silence. Um, in various ways, for example, there's been legal threats, there's been threats to ruin reputation in order to protect the NKT's reputation, even though they preach on the throne about non-attachment to reputation, they'll threaten your rep- reputation in order to protect their own. Mm-hmm. Um, people have received, funeral brochures have been sent to people's parents with their name on to suggest that their risk of murder um, all of it's been done with fake identities so that um, it frightens you, but you can't go to the police. Um, and there's been a lot of character assassination of former members through the use of propaganda, um, and uh, including myself. Just before the one more thing before you go, I want to make sure to ask any of you to be in touch with me at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com to let me know if there is a story you want to be able to share on the podcast or if there's someone you know who has an important story to share that ties in with the theme of this podcast. And also, if you've studied something about manipulation or manipulative relationships, or indoctrination of any sort from different angles, let me know too. People love to learn from people who have studied this subject, and I'd love to learn from you and with you as well. Now, one more thing before you go. I am so glad to be able to have you here, Dr. Michelle Haslam. I look forward to having you hear the rest of our conversation next week. We went over many subjects and we'll continue to go over many subjects next week, but I would like to expand on an idea that we discussed during our conversation together. Michelle talks about this idea of crazy wisdom. When she talks about what she experienced, what she learned, how it was presented, and I think generally how it's presented when people are involved in controlling relationships or cultic groups with a partner or leader 
who wants to be seen as higher in every way than others and has tapped into some source of information that no one else has. I don't doubt that there are people who have an incredible amount of knowledge about a subject that is unknown to most. I also don't doubt that there are people who have tapped into something that is uniquely intelligent and might sound crazy when they talk about it until people realize there are facts to back it up. And I don't doubt that there are people who have been discounted throughout their lives just because their ideas were different and out there. And I have no problem with someone who talks about having this kind of crazy wisdom. As long as the wisdom part is evident to a greater degree than the crazy part. And what I mean by wisdom is if, again, there are some facts to back it up, or if it's something that has been well thought out, if it's something that people can benefit from knowing or should know, if it's something that truly brings people closer to something important and insightful and potentially fundamental in their lives, and that the information is not something that will wind up hurting people or just be used to make people think that you have wisdom in order for them to just sit at your feet waiting for more pearls of this kind of wisdom to fall out of your mouth. So here are some guidelines I've compiled to help you know if you're being faced with more crazy than wisdom, and in some cases, just crazy and no wisdom. If it doesn't make sense and continues to make no sense, and the fact that it makes no sense is something that is seen as proof that it is beyond all other wisdom and from some enlightened or higher power or greater intellect than mere mortals can understand, mere mortals like you. If you cannot somehow decipher it or understand it, or it's being used to control you or as an excuse to abuse you, then the person who is imparting that knowledge to you can say whatever they want and get away with whatever they want, the crazier the better. And if you try to follow it and it still doesn't make sense, and then it makes less and less sense, until you're just encouraged to abandon your critical thinking and release an invisible barrier you must have to it that they can only help you release, of course, then it will just always continue in this way, and you will have to suspend your disbelief in order to get by, and you'll have to abandon your thoughts and your instincts and your internal voice that says, hmm, I'm not so sure, in order just to be accepted, in order to be respected. Then, in these situations, there is crazy without wisdom. And if you want to find out more and search for more of this wisdom on your own, and they tell you to always remember that they are the only source of this wisdom, then you will know that your teacher is not a healthy person. Then they care more about being the one, the only one, to give this information to you. They care more about being your teacher and being seen as your only teacher, then I think they care about the value or veracity of the information itself. And if you try to speak to somebody else who has advertised that they also have tapped into this wisdom, or your teacher or your partner, whoever has offered you this information, tells you not to speak to anyone else 
who has said they have also found this and tapped into this, and they alone are the world's leading expert at it, and no one knows more than they do, the chance of that being true is probably hmm, zero. And that you have found the world's leading expert on anything, knowing how many people there are that we share this planet with. But let's say they do know more than most. It would take a lot of very unhealthy, entitled hubris to declare yourself the world's leading expert on anything. So again, you're dealing in those situations with more of a narcissistic personality disorder than you're being offered information that you can't get anywhere else. And if you question it because you find it either has some fault with it or it's different than information you've come across when you want to compare notes, but the teacher, the leader, your partner has no patience for that. And then there's no way for you to use kind of a healthy Socratic method of questioning and no way for you to use critical thinking. Then it's not a joining of wisdom with mutual respect between teacher and student, partner and partner, but will remain this prized possession of the teacher, the person who will always be higher up than you and who will always be someone you are dependent upon to get more of that information. And you want to know also that if you go ahead and try to follow the teachings or use this wisdom, but it still doesn't cure you of something or have the impact it was promised to have and the response that you get is that it must be because you didn't understand it fully or because you weren't trying hard enough or you weren't believing in it enough or you're not capable and you don't have the intellectual capacity or the same level of spiritual enlightenment. You, in that moment, are gaining a lot of evidence. Hold on to that evidence. And what I mean by that is, this isn't evidence about your compromised intellect or spiritual advancement, but rather evidence about the need for the other person to always seem superior to you. And for you to never quite master this information, to never be able to be ready to use it in a successful way on your own until you take more courses or go on more workshops or listen to more lectures or open your heart more, open your mind more, open your wallet more, prove your worthiness. So the wisdom here, if we can see it in a different way, is that I want you to be able to engage your wisdom to notice when things are crazy. That's actually my preferred mode of crazy wisdom. Be safe out there, as there are a lot of charlatans, new ones I hear about every day, and how I wish that were an exaggeration. You need to be a smart spiritual consumer. Wisdom is not something that should be meted out in little bits and pieces and little crumbs that you can only keep acquiring if you deserve it, or you've proven that you deserve it, or you've proven you're capable of acquiring, or only from one true source. If that were the case, there wouldn't be libraries. There wouldn't be books. There wouldn't be universities. And there wouldn't be studies and courses, and there wouldn't be thousands of teachers. And the teachers who I've really appreciated over the years were the teachers who appreciated other teachers, the ones who said things like, don't just take my word for it, check out this book 
or check out this website. Find out about this information on your own or take this other person's class and learn from those who were my teachers and those who challenged my way of thinking, meaning the people I agreed with and the people I didn't, the people who I thought were grounded and the people who I thought were out there. They were all my teachers. So that, I think, is a presentation of information from a person you can trust. They know there are other sources of information and they don't feel threatened by that and instead want you to be able to access it all. Now that is a chance for wisdom without as much of the crazy part. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's Radio Public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.